So typically when people talk about the separation of storage and compute, they're talking about databases, they're talking about running maybe data warehouse workloads uh, like a Snowflake, um, which are analytical and can take uh, quite a long time um, and need to be scaled independently of the storage that is being done. And you heard a little bit about how um, Postgres and Neon is doing the separation, I think, which is a fascinating concept. Uh, but also there's one way in which storage and, uh, storage and compute are being separated, which is that sometimes they're separated in time, um, like the, comp the compute or will be done much, much later after the storage has been done because the device is essentially offline. And this is one of the most interesting interviews I've heard because it came out of nowhere. Typically, I don't pay attention to IoT type use cases. I don't pay attention to military tech use cases. But this speaker on the Kafka official podcast was so compelling that it actually made it interesting for me to think about uh, real-time processing of signals um, in highly, highly adverse conditions um, where separation of compute is not a theoretical or occasional thing. It is a part of the job. Is this somehow fundamentally related to the idea that we're separating storage and compute? Can we draw a line there? Yeah, that's a good question because one of the things that um, storage and compute, like in distributed computing systems, the reason why storage and compute are isolated onto a node, like in the classic HDFS data node or in the classic brokers with drives bolted to the broker is something that's called bisectional bandwidth. And it's an HPC term. And so bisectional bandwidth um, from the HPC, like uh, the old world, so more history on my side, I started out working at a company called Control Data, which is founded by a guy named Seymour Cray. And I worked a lot on uh, Seymour Cray designed supercomputers. But in the 90s- Is that the Cray? Yeah. Of Cray, supercomputer. Yeah. Okay. Of Cray, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I worked on, I did some C compiler work on, on basically Seymour Cray designed computers. And that led me to working at the Oracle Kernel Group because I had this weird history. Um, <laughs> in the 90s, com uh, supercomputers started to become distributed Beowulf clusters on commodity Linux hardware. That's an important lesson or that's an important event in the history of something like Hadoop or Kafka because it's high-performance distributed scalable computing on commodity servers. So there's a straight line between sort of classic Cray mainframes, Beowulf clusters, and Hadoop. And then that line sort of continues into Kafka because Kafka is a distributed, rep-free, kind of horizontally scalable uh, uh, data processing architecture. So there's, in, in my mind anyway, there's a straight line between all these three things. But the reason I mentioned sort of the HPC world is that the Beowulf cluster, once you had the working set, you know, isolated onto a bunch of drives with a computer, then that working set, let's take classic HPC workloads like finite element analysis, right? You crank on your corner of the grid, right? Because you're modeling weather forecasting or the surface of a an F-35 or what have you, right? So those, right. those used to run on big Cray mainframes and now they're, you know, a little slice of the wing that you're modeling now runs on one server and you have a thousand servers and now you get parallelism. So right. as you add another server, you add disk bandwidth, network bandwidth, 
memory and compute bandwidth every time you add a component. So that's bisectional bandwidth. In the classic Kafka sense, where you're running kind of CP on-prem and you have a broker with a bunch of drives, most are NVMe SSDs these days, but you, <clears throat> so they're pretty quick. Then every time you add a broker, you get storage bandwidth, you get memory latency or memory bandwidth, you get computing power and you get network bandwidth because you just add brokers, add brokers, add brokers. And if you yeah, architect yeah. the app and the partition mapping, right? It's not magic voodoo out of the box, right? You still have to do some Kafka uh, architectural design homework, but then the thing essentially scales horizontally. And, you know, if you look at what Netflix and Uber do for a living, they've, they've sort of dialed that in correctly, com- fully exploiting. Now, when you move to cloud computing or elastic computing, mm-hmm. in order to be able to have the, the elastic shrink to work, you have to have the data on shared storage. So you trade off a little bit of bisectional bandwidth IO for the ability to certainly elastically expand, but also to elastically shrink. So the key to CC or to anything that runs, uh, uh, anything that runs that can, can shrink persistent data access. This is very important, right? Because this data is persistent. It's mm-hmm. stateful data, right? Normally, if you have stateless data, you shrink, you toss, right? So it's really easy to like, you know, expand the cluster to 100 nodes, fool around with something, and then the result gets written back to a persistent store. And then the intermediate results that are out on the on the nodes gets tossed, right? But you, it's map, you reduce, you throw away everything that got you there. Right. And so in classic MapReduce, MapReduce, once you once you do the reduction and then you finally have the result, then you can actually, if you're not that interested in keeping the original working set around, you toss it and you shrink your nodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In transaction acid semantics processing, shrinking data, it's got to be on shared storage or you lose it. And we used to say this, and I still kind of make this point, which is data is not elastic. <laughs> but the but the fine print is persistent stateful data is not elastic it's got to be around it's got to still be acid compliant especially in the transaction shrinking world in analytics again as a trade off we get to shrink that because of those hundreds of millions of rows aren't interesting to us because that's yesterday's data set or this morning's data set right you do the analysis and this is important to understand because it's not the data that's important. It's the analytic output, right? What the data science algorithms result, that result, that tells you that the, that it is a signature of interest and that's the money. So it's kind of somewhat more, it's a little beyond sort of the data is important. It's the intelligence gathered from the data. So with my customers, whether it's Cal Fire, Caltrans, or the DOD, those customers, they're interested in what the patterns are, right? Whatever those patterns are, the pipeline relay pumps in Northern California are about to fail. Okay, that's bad. We need to, it's not so much the raw data. So then you have this ability to, again, take the difference between classic acid semantic transactions and signal processing analytics and the notion of elasticity, where you don't really have a stringent requirement on the elasticity of acid semantic data on the analytics side, you 
definitely do on this side. But on this side, now you have a little more rope to work with. And as a platform designer, that allows me to build a more flexible or cost-effective or efficient or at the edge, more resilient platform so that so that the analysts can get their job done. So I am I'm trying to piece this together in my head with technology. So I am saying, okay, I want a system that has transactional um, processing, but I also need to be able to take, bring in a vast quantity of data, process it, and then maybe look at something like topic compaction to throw away the not so significant data on the way through. Right. So like, now I found the signal. Now I've brought it into one place and joined it and analyzed it. I can start to compact and throw away the old stuff. This is really good. Um, this is a really good point because one of the most important tools of handling like super high volume velocities is uh, you get two very important uh, levers. One is compaction and one is retention. Mm. Because you might want to set the retention just a little outside of the case SQL window, for example. Yeah. Right. So that's really now in the asset world, people would look at you like you're a crazy person. But again, when you're in the signal world, using compaction, because keeping a flight data recorded history is important forensically. So it's not useless, but it's probably going to go into a batch warehouse to do long haul, large working set forensic analysis, right? So then some topics need to be compacted because it's like, I really don't need the old data. I need to know what's going on right now. And what went on 190 milliseconds ago isn't really that interesting. (laughs) But, But the windowing is interesting because then you get a little more of a signal tail, right? And that's important to data analysts because if they can see the last 34 samples, and then their algorithms can can start to understand, especially if they start to do what I call machine doing, right? <laughs> Define that one for me. Well, everybody knows what machine learning is, right? You have yeah. big ass, big ass working set sitting out on some you know um, S three set of buckets, and you're running Databricks classic stuff, right? Machine doing is actually deploying the out al- the trained algorithms out front, right on the live streams, so. To me, that's machine doing, not just machine learning, because now it's actually doing its day job. And I like that term because it helps you understand that we're in the doing business, right? Because (laughs) we're about real-time stream processing. And so we don't do machine learning within a topic. But again, with case SQL user-defined functions, UDFs, there's your hook into the model. So the model can train on the... The model can actually incrementally train if it's that sophisticated, but your trained model is sitting there, probably in a jar that's just called out through the KSQL UDF interface. And Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you're watching, you're using your machine learning algorithm, not only to look for things in a more sophisticated way, but to learn from what it's seeing. And that's a big difference. I think that from my perspective, Machine learning and AI, which are kind of buzzwords, but but from a processing point, from a data processing point of view, what they really represent from my chair is their dynamically adaptive algorithms. Yes. Where if you write a piece of code and you throw it in a jar and off you go and you're like, ah, the algorithm's crap. We got to write a new one. Okay, you got to change the code, re-sling the jar, blah, blah, blah. What ML and AI really represent is is a category of dynamically adaptive algorithms. And so they can dynamically adapt to the data stream that's coming in. So if you can get whether 
whether you use the hipster terms or not, if you can get those algorithms hung off live traffic right out on the streams interface, then now that's the best chance that they have to certainly help you understand your awareness, but also learn as fast as possible because you're not going back into the batch forensic working set warehouse to retrain. Now, some, this is kind of an evolving concept. A lot of data scientists who do machine learning are still doing the classic big working set training model. So dynamic machine learning and dynamic machine doing are kind of a cutting edge topic, but I've run into a few customers and um, uh, systems integrators, SIs, that are definitely uh, looking at this, but it's kind of state of the art for the data science world. But when they're ready, we're an ideal backplane for that because it's like you hang your jar, we'll call it, as soon as the traffic hits the topic, you can do you can do your job. And that's a huge think about the latency in terms of milliseconds that that cuts out of the time you become aware. Yeah, yeah. Signal processing and adaptive signal processing. It's adaptive signal processing. All right. I, I don't actually know if I clipped the whole thing there. Um, I do recommend the entire podcast. I, I did. It's one of the rare occasions where I actually tweeted out to the guy to compliment him on his interview because I thought he made a complex and highly, usually quite boring topic, very relatable, and that is a feat. <laughs>